Ephesians chapter number 2. I, I'm excited about preaching this message. And I, I want the Lord to use me tonight. And I want Him to be lifted up and His name glorified tonight. And as I read this passage, God just burned in my heart some of these truths. And uh, for those of you that have been saved for a little while, it's not going to be anything new. But I hope that I can remind you of what Christ has done for you on Calvary. Ephesians chapter number 2 tonight, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein, and I want you to underscore this, in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, here it is again, underscore it, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye, are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being, and here it is one final time, in time past, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus ye, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, glorify Your Word and Your name tonight. I pray that You would bring to our heart's remembrance, Lord, what You've done for us at Calvary. Oh God, the change that You've made in our lives. I pray that each and every person here would be uplifted by the preaching of Your Word. God, I pray that You would touch on each heart's need, whatever it may be. Lord, help us to be mindful to give You the glory that's due to You. And Father, I pray that You'd meet with us in a mighty way. We love You tonight, Lord, because of Calvary, because of the blood, because of the sacrifice of Your Son, we can love You. So teach us now, Lord, to love You more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, in verse 2, in verse 3, and in verse 11, we have a phrase used, in times past. Or in verse 11, it's in time past we were these things. I got to considering that phrase and what it entails and what it denotes. If you read this passage carefully, you'll find that it details the change that Christ makes in the life of a sinner that accepts Christ. Can I tell you tonight, I believe in a Savior that changes people, don't you? The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And I still believe that. I don't have to explain it away and make excuses for it. I believe God changes a man when He saves him. Now, I'm not saying He's perfect. I'm not saying He's sinless. I'm saying He's changed by the blood of Christ and by the grace of God. And as we read this passage, I'm struck in verses 2 and 3 and 11 and 12 
12 particularly, that it details three things about the life of the sinner without God. And I want you to jot these down tonight. Verse number 1 and verse number 2 details where we were as sinners. I want you to notice that verse number 2 and 3 details who we were as sinners. And verse 11 and 12 details what we were when we're sinners. Can I tell you that God made a total change in me when He saved me? I'm not saying I don't make mistakes. I'm not saying that I don't mess up. But I'm saying where I was at and who I was and what I was were changed when I met Christ at Calvary. And I want us to notice a few things tonight. When we speak of where we're at, we speak of the condition that we're in. I think that's denoted in verse 2. Listen, it says, wherein in time past you walked. Walk denotes location. It denotes progression. If I was to say I'm walking over here, walking over there, that'd tell you where I was at. And can I tell you that a sinner, before he comes to know Christ, is in a completely different place than where he is after he's saved. I want you to notice three things. First off, look at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I want to say, first off, we see the sinner in the deadness of sins. Do you know that a lost man is not just immoral, he's not just ungodly, he's not just sinful, but the Bible classifies him as dead. In fact, Christ did not come to make bad men better, but he came to make dead men alive. And the chief complaint that God has with the sinner is not that he's immoral, it's not that he's ungodly. If anything, God tells us why the sinner is these things, because by nature he's a child of wrath. The Bible never once blames the sinner for doing those things, but rather denotes the fact that he is a sinner, he's dead, and he's acting according to his nature. You see, the problem is the fact that we're born in sin and into sin. We're born as sinners, but we're born not only as sinners. From the moment that we can make a decision in life, we're born sinning as well. We're sinners by nature. The Bible teaches us very clearly in the book of Romans, chapter number 5 and verse number 12. The Bible says, for as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men in that all of sin. Now, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying that by Adam, sin entered into the world, and when sin came, death came. For the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But not only are we sinners by nature, but it's manifested, the Bible says, in that all have sinned. We're sinners by nature, but that's manifested by our actions as well. You say, what if a sinner lived his whole life, never committed a sin? Let me say, first off, it's an impossibility. But if we're just going to be the devil's advocate, and I don't like to be the devil's advocate ever, amen, but let's say we're just going to say it theoretically. What if he never committed a sin? I'd say he's still worthy of hell because he's born unregenerate. He's born sinful. He's born alienated from God. He's born dead, the Bible says. The sinner, when he's born, is born in the deadness of sin. But look at verse 2. Wherein in time past ye walked, now notice this, according to the course of this world. We see the sinner in the deadness of sins. But we see him in the dictatorship of society. The Bible says he walks according to the course of this world. We know what a course is. We talk about a racing course. We talk about a water course. Some of us talk about a golf course. Amen. But we know what a course is. A course is a predefined and specified means of travel or way of travel. It's a route. It's a path that a person may take. And the Bible tells me that the sinner walks in the course of this world. Did it ever dawn on you that a sinner doesn't know what to do except what the world tells him is right? 
Look around in society today. Why is it that homosexuality, sodomy as the Bible calls it, uh, was a sin and was reprobate and was awful and abominable 50 years ago, but today even our president supports it? Why is that? Because the world is changing. And the sinner is defined by the world in which he lives. If the world tells him something's okay, he believes it's okay. You know why? He walks according to the course of this world. You see, only the Bible Christian can have an anchor and hope of the soul sure and steadfast and unmoving against the winds and gales of this ever-changing world. Only we can have a steadiness in our doctrine, in our life, in our attitude, in our actions, in the way that we appear. We have a steady course because we have a heavenly course. But the sinner only walks in the course of this world. Isn't it amazing what's tolerated today? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing the things that are common, the things that are accepted today? Avery, you can go down to West Town Mall and you can, uh, I guess you can go down to East Town Mall. I don't know. Is it even there anymore? <laughs> but you can go down to West Town Mall in the summertime and see more skin than you would have seen in a pornography flick 50 years ago. Nobody raises an eyebrow except it's with a perverted notion either. It doesn't even bother anybody. I mean, we, we turn on the television. I'm not preaching against television. Television can be used for good, it can be used for bad, and it's used for a lot of bad nowadays. But you can turn on the television, you can see stuff that you would have had to snuck into a back alley to see 50 years ago. But now it's accepted. Now it's common. You mark my word, and I've said it before, but I'm not ashamed to say it again. You mark my word, it will not be long until pedophilia will be accepted as the common course in this society in the same way that homosexuality is accepted. You say, it couldn't happen to a civilized society. It happened to ancient Rome. It happened to the ancient Greeks. You study your history. He'll find out that pedophilia was a common occurrence. In fact, when they went into the army, usually when a young boy went into the army, they'd pair him with an older male to act as a mentor, but also act as a physical lover to that little child. In ancient Rome, in ancient Greece. You want to tell me we're not on the same course in this country? It's not going to be long. Because you know what the question's going to start to be asked? How young is too young? They're going to start asking that. How young is too young? It won't be long. It'll go from 18 to 16. It already is between 18, anybody under 18 and a 16-year-old. It's not against the law. But it won't be long till it'll go from 16 to 15 and to 14 to 13 to 12 to 11. And it'll get to a point because this society is relative and sinful and godless. It'll get to a point where they'll say, it's not your place to judge whether an 8-year-old boy or a 9-year-old boy can love a grown man. Am I right or am I right now? Isn't that where we're headed in this world? Won't be long. You know why? Because this world is ever-changing. And the lost man knows only how to walk according to the course of this world. What's dictated to him is appropriate and right. By the news media, somebody say amen right there, by the news media, by the government, by Hollywood, it's dictated to him what is right and what is okay. And that's the path that he walks because that's all that he knows. He lives in the dictatorship of society. But what do we really know he's living by? Look at the end of or the middle of verse number two. The Bible says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We see him in the deadness of sin. We see him in the dictatorship of society. But I'd say we see him in the delegation of Satan as well. A minion, a servant of Satan. Say, boy, that's harsh. That couldn't be my grandbaby. Yeah, sure it could. 
Couldn't be my child. That my lost child couldn't be in the delegation of Satan. My neighbor couldn't be in the delegation of Satan. My spouse, my friend, my co-worker couldn't be in the delegation of Satan. Listen to what Christ said about the religion-loving Pharisees. He said, as your fathers do, so do ye also. You do as your fathers the devil. As your father the devil. He said that about church-going people, too. He said about religious people. Said, you do as your father does. You're a liar just like your father is. And can I say that the lost person is at the very whim and at the very manipulation of Satan? We see it everywhere. I mean, listen, I, I don't believe, and you believe what you want about this, but when you look at politics today, I don't believe that these uh, politicians necessarily have. Now, some of them have at their very core the destruction of all things pertaining to God. Some of them do, but a lot of them I don't think they do. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to win elections. They're trying to make everybody happy. They're trying to ride the fence. But all the time they're being used by a mystery of iniquity that even now worketh in this world. The will and purpose of Satan to destroy a country that used to be God-fearing and used to be God-loving. They're used as the minions and delegation of Satan. They're used to drive people away from Bible Christianity. And that's not just true of politicians. It's true of actors. It's true of all manner of people in the prominent public eye. But it's true of the everyday lost person as well. They're at the very whim of Satan. Their life is spellbound under his wishes. Some of you can remember what it was like before you saved. You remember how blind you were. You remember how your mind was blinded from the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember how you just did what everybody else did. You walked according to the course of this world. But you remember, too, how that your life was a wreck. Who do you think was trying to destroy it? It's the one that was a thief and a destroyer and a liar from the beginning. That's the one that was trying to destroy your life. The lost person is in the delegation of Satan. You were in that place. I was in that place. That's where we were. But who were we? I want you to notice verse 2, the end of it. The Bible says, The Spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all... Boy, I, I think we ought to underscore that just for our own humility. We all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That word conversation is important. It tells me that it's dealing with the lifestyle of the lost and ungodly sinner. Who he was, who he uh, projected himself to be to society. And I want to say, first off, we see the lost person as being self-reliant. Look what it says. The spirit that now worketh in the children of, and underscore this phrase, disobedience. Disobedient to who? Disobedient to the God of this world. Not the God of this world as in Satan, but the God of the universe. Disobedient to the Almighty God. Disobedient to the God that created everything. Disobedient to the one that put breath into their lungs. Disobedient to Him. Now, they're not being disobedient to their father. Their father is the devil. But they're being disobedient to God. You know what that is? Rebellion. That's what that is. Rebellion. Read Romans chapter 1. You'll find the rebellion of this world described very vividly. And where does rebellion come from? It comes from self-reliance. I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone's help. And isn't the motto of this world today, who is it that we look to with such admiration? Who is it that's lifted up and placed upon a gilded pedestal? It's the man that can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. That's who we idolize in this world. We idolize self-reliance. Someone that's a self-made man or a self-made woman. Someone that doesn't need any help from anyone. I'd like to tell you that until I came to the place that I knew I needed help, I couldn't even be saved. You couldn't either. 
till you came to a place that you were aware that you could not save yourself, you would not be saved. The lost man is seen as being self-reliant. I can do it myself. I don't need God. I don't need the truth of God's Word. Boy, doesn't that characterize science today? Science does everything it can today. And you know what I think it ought to be called? Because God says it ought to be called this, science falsely so-called. That's what God calls it. Science falsely so-called. And they call it science today. Science ought to be the observation of those things which are perceptible. Nothing more, nothing less. But now it's seen as a religion to destroy the very foundation of a belief in God from the life of a person in this world. Today, science is used as a religion to try to hinder people from a belief in the Bible or the God of the Bible. You say, are you against science? No, I'm not against science. You say, are you against scientists? No, I'm not against scientists. I'm against militant atheists trying to parade themselves as scientists. That's what I'm against. I'm against people trying to hijack the curriculum of, of schools that are in Bible-believing communities and trying to turn them into mind-brainwashing machines for atheistic dogma and doctrine. That's what I'm against. We see that science pervades this idea of self-reliance. We don't need to believe in a God. We can believe that we did it on our own. Does it make a lot of sense? I, mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm simple. Amen? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so simple, I, I don't even know how to spell it, you know? So... So don't don't misunderstand me. I'm not a smart man. I'm not I'm not uh, trying to portray myself as a smart man. But which makes more sense to believe? Does it make more sense to believe that a God in heaven with design, with intelligence, created this world that, by the way, operates with design and intelligence? Does that make more sense or does it make more sense to believe that a uh, massive energy that no one knows where it came from gathered and uh, all of a sudden combusted? Nobody knows how or why flung everything everywhere, but nobody really knows where. They all began to function and work in such a way that would create the existence around us. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't believe it does to the average thinking man. The illustration has been given before of the Big Bang Theory that it's the equivalent of taking uh, one of the old-timey pocket watches with all the gears, with all the mechanisms completely apart, sticking it in a burlap sack, shaking it up a bunch, pouring it out and expecting it to come back as one watch that functions and operates perfectly. How many times do you reckon you'd have to do that before you'd have a working watch? <laughs> Probably never happen, am I right? And yet they claim that this creation around us, what's at the heart of it, though? If they admit there's a God, they must admit there's a judgment. If they admit there's a God, they must admit that His Word is true. If they admit there's a God, they must admit that there'll be a day when they'll stand before Him. And that goes against the self-reliant nature of the lost man. But we see Him not only as self-reliant, but look at the end or the middle of verse number 3. The Bible says, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, now notice this, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. They're self-serving. The lost man knows how to do nothing but try to appease his own wishes, wants, and desires. That's all he knows. In fact, we've come to a place today where we idolize our wishes. And in society today, the motto is, if it feels good, do it. If it's what you want, that's what you need to do. But people have quit asking what God wants in the matter. <laughs> that's the picture, though, of the lost man. Not just today, but it's always been. Always been. What was it that struck to the very heart of Eve and bathed her in temptation when he said, take and eat of this fruit, for it's good to eat. It's good to eat. It's much desired to be eaten. It's going to taste good. If you'll eat it. That was her flesh wanted that. All the lost man knows to do 
is to try to live to fulfill his flesh. It's not uncommon in people that reach great heights of power and prosperity to take their own lives in suicide. I don't rejoice when anybody does that. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't rejoice when anybody does that. But I'll tell you why it happens. They spend their whole life chasing the carrot. And they finally get it and they find out it doesn't satisfy them. They spend their whole life fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of their mind. And when they finally get it, they realize how empty it really is. And then there's nowhere to go. They've hit the top and the bottom at the same time, and there's nowhere to go. Despair sets in. Perplexity sets in. And before you know it, they end it all. Because the lost man knows only how to be self-serving. I've given this illustration before concerning supposed morality in the life of a lost man. They may love their family, but they treat their family good because their family pleases them. Their children make them happy. Their wife encourages them. And so they, they love their family, which is a good thing. And some would say a godly thing. But if the motive is simply because you love your family and not because it's commanded of God and expected of Him and in honoring Him, that's a hollow reason. There's supposed morality in the life of a lost man, but at the end of the day, like an onion, as you peel it away and peel it away, you'll find at the very heart of it that self-centeredness and self-servingness is the real core reason of the motivation of any lost man, whatever action it may be. Look at verse number 3 at the very end of it. It says, And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I want to say they're self-serving, but they're self-satisfying. At the end of the day, they're doing what their nature requires them to do. I said it earlier, and, and, and maybe it needs to be clarified just a hair. The Bible doesn't necessarily blame a man for the, for the wrong that he does, a lost man. And, and I would clarify it by merely saying this. The Bible denotes clearly that when a lost man commits sin, he's doing only what is according to his nature to do. You see, the saved man, when he sins, he has to neglect and ignore his spiritual man, to sin. But a lost person can be happy in sin. You know why? It's their nature. It's their nature to sin. <laughs> they don't have to go against their nature to do wrong. They don't have to go against their nature to upset God and to uh, post an affront to Him. They don't have to go against their nature to do it. It's according to their nature. I want you to notice a third thing. We see where we were and who we were. But I want you to notice what we were. Look at verse 11. The Bible says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the present or in the world. I want you to notice first off, you say, what is a sinner? What, what denotes him? What are some core things about him? Well, I want you to notice first off that the Bible presents him as friendless. You say, preacher, that doesn't make sense. I know lost people that have friends, not that have true friends. Listen to what it says. By the way, the only reason the world has anything to do with a lost man is because of what the world can get out of him. You hear me? That's the only reason. You ever notice how people that sin always want other people to sin with them? I was talking to someone the other day that was talking about someone that they know and love dearly. They said, you know, preacher, I just can't spend time around them because every time I spend time around them, they want me to go out drinking with them. I said, you know why that is, don't you? They said, why? Because they don't want to be alone in their sin. It's not that they want to spend time with you. It's that they want someone to commit sin with. 
That's the only kind of friend that a sinner has. And you look back over your time when you were lost and undone, and you look back at the people that, that presented themselves as friends to you when you got saved and started walking in the narrow way. Did they stay with you or did they forsake you? They turned their back on you. You know why? They couldn't use you anymore. Didn't need you anymore. They're friendless, not only by the reprobates, but I want you to notice verse 11. Clearly it says, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. Now, Paul's writing to Gentile believers at the church at Ephesus. And listen to what he says. He says, you were called and are called uncircumcision by the circumcision that's made with hands. Now, what he's talking about is those that are Jews or Judaizers, if we could use that terminology. He's saying those that adhered to the Old Testament law even after the grace of God had been shown in the truth of God by Jesus Christ. And you know what he says? He says that religious crowd, they called you the uncircumcision. Now, you say, well, that don't sound bad to me. That don't sound like a, uh, a derogatory statement to me. It was to them. They were saying, you're Gentile dogs. You don't know anything about God, and we don't want you anywhere near us. Don't you know, uh, remember how it was so strange for Christ to talk to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? You know why? Because she was half Gentile. And the Jews, the Samaritan woman said, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans because they were half-breeds, they were half-Gentiles. They had been, uh, their society had uh, been intermarried into by the Assyrians whenever they uh, overthrew, by Sennacherib, overthrew the Israel nation, Israelite nation. They intermarried Gentiles into them. And the Jewish mentality towards a Gentile was, you're worthless, you're a dog, you're alienated, I want nothing to do with you. Can I say that the sad truth is today, not only do the reprobates have no use for the lost man, but usually the religious crowd don't have no use for him either. I tell you what we want in our churches today. We want turnkey Christians. We want people that's never going to mess up, people that's never going to come in with their hair a little long, never come in with their clothes a little tight, never going to come in, uh, never going to be out working on something and a curse word slip. We want people to be absolutely perfect. We don't want to have patience with them. We don't want to see them grow in grace and in truth. We want them to be immediately perfect. And can I say we're immediately changed when we're saved, but we're not immediately perfect. <laughs> Even after a lot of years, we're not immediately perfect. We find that the religious crowd typically has nothing to do with the lost man. But let me say, not just in the major attitude of, of uh, fundamental churches today, and there is a lot of that, but let me use religion in a broad term as speaking of uh, religions that are just that, nothing but religion. Do you know that the religious crowds have no use for the lost whatsoever? You go down the line, go down the line. The Jehovah's Witnesses are in the business of proselyting, not evangelizing. Am I right? When you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, you know what they always want you to do? They always want you to come down to a kingdom hall and partake in, in their Lord's Supper that they have. They don't ever say anything to you about being born again. You know why they're not interested in seeing you saved? They just want to use you like anybody would. The Mormons are the same way. You can go down the line. Any, any religious denomination, any religious denomination that's just that, nothing but religion, they have no use for the lost man. We see them as friendless. But I want you to look at verse 12. That at that time... You were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We see them as friendless, but we see the lost man as futureless. Futureless. The Bible says without hope and without God in this world. The lost man really can only live in the moment for he has no future. He has no future. 
What you see as the product of many uh, religions today, particularly Eastern religions, is the result of the lost man trying to concoct a better fate to himself than hell. Trying to find something, some kind of future, something that's going to matter. And I, please, I don't, I don't mean to sound as if I'm standing on a pedestal or being self-righteous, but for the grace of God, would I be in that state? And I mean that as literally as I possibly can. But for the grace of God, I'd be in that state. But let me say, what a hollow existence it is to live as a lost person. To know that nothing you do is ever going to amount to anything. To know that no matter what you do in your own energies, you're still hell-bound and hopeless. Lost man, what is he? He's futureless. But I like verse 13. I may be, I may be fudging a little bit on the outline, but you stick with me. We see the lost men, man is friendless. And I'd put it this way. Us that are saved, we were friendless. We were futureless. Look at verse 13. But now. <laughs> oh, I'm glad Paul didn't stop writing at verse 12. I'm so glad that there was a but now. In fact, it's not just but now, but it's but now in Christ Jesus. Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. We see that we were friendless, we were futureless, but now we are faultless in the person of Jesus Christ. I've titled the message, that wasn't an introduction, I promise you, but I've titled this message, I Ain't What I Used to Be. I hope you don't mind a little bad grammar when it comes to, to sermon titles. I ain't what I used to be. About the change that Christ has made in you and made in me, those of us that are born again. We see that when Christ saved us at Calvary, it changed us in a mighty way. All of the things that were said about the lost sinner are now undone because of the cross of Calvary. Used to we had no real friends. Used to we had no future. But now we stand faultless before God in the person of Jesus Christ. We're made nigh and brought close by the cross of Christ. I just want to rewind for a minute and just undo some of these things one by one and say that first off, Christ changed where we were. We were dead in sins. We were in the dictatorship of society. We were in the delegation of Satan. But look at verse number four. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Now, wait a minute. We were dead in sins. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. We were in the deadness of sins, but now we're made alive in Christ Jesus. Now we have real life. It's not just a temporary life, but it's eternal life. He took us out of the deadness of sins and put us in the life that is in Jesus Christ. What about that miry clay we were in? Look at what it said. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I know we live in this world. I understand that. But in a positional sense, we were taken out of being children of wrath and children of disobedience and children of this world and children of Satan. We were lifted out of that miry clay and set on a solid rock and our uh, feet uh, were established and he established our goings and he sat us together with him in heavenly places. He changed who we are. He changed where we were. I want you to notice, secondly, look at verse 7. He changed who we were. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Used to, we were self-reliant, self-serving, self-satisfying. It was all about self. Now it's all about grace. You know what grace is? Grace is nothing about yourself. 
Grace is all about who Christ is. That's what grace is about. Oh, we're, we're saved by His grace, but we're given riches according to His grace. Grace doesn't have a thing to do with who you are. It's all about who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Him. We were all these other things. We were self-reliant. But grace blew self-reliance right out of the water. Because <laughs> grace said if you're going to be saved, you don't need yourself, you don't need your works, but you need me. We're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace. Grace blew self-servingness out of the water. You see, before, because we thought it was our life, we lived to please us. But now we walk by faith, not by sight, and we live by grace. Grace is what we're getting from Him. Not about what it is for us, but grace allows us to live for Him. Self-satisfying. <laughs> we were by nature children of wrath and children of disobedience. So you know what God did? Boy, God just cuts right to the heart of the matter, doesn't He? That's what we were by nature. So you know what He did? He changed our nature. He gave us a new nature. You ever wonder, and Nicodemus asked this question, said, why is it that a man must be born again? Why do we have to be born again? That was the thrust of what he was asking. That was the thrust of the conversation. He came to Christ by night and he said, uh, Rabbi, I know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man could do the things which thou doest except God had sent him. And he, he was basically asking him, how is it that you do what you do? And you know what Christ said? He said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, your problem is you're trying to serve God in the energy of your flesh, in the energy of your nature. Nicodemus, you've got to have a new nature placed inside of you. Religion won't cut it. Self-reliance won't cut it. It's got to be a new nature. We're born into the family of God. At first we were born with the nature of our earthly father, but now we're born with the nature of our heavenly father. We inherited our earthly nature from our earthly father, but our heavenly nature we got from on high, from the God of heaven, and now we're born again, and the spiritual man is made alive within us. I want you to notice a final thing, and I'm going to hush. Look at verse number 10. For we are His workmanship. I could stop right there. For we, what were we before? We're used to, we were friendless and futiles. That's what we were. But now what are we? Now we're His workmanship. Now there's a plan and a purpose and a will in our lives from God on high. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now we've got a new purpose in life. Now it's not hollow. Now it's not about us. Now it's about God. He's given us a purpose. We're His workmanship. We're to live to His glory and to His honor. Boy, He made a change in me. And, you know, you may say, Preacher, you're a 10-year-old boy. I don't look as much at, at what I once was. I look at what I could have been if it hadn't been for the grace of God. Saved as a young boy, and that's a blessed thing. I, I encourage, I encourage young people, don't wait till you're older to get saved. Get saved as young as you possibly can. Don't waste years. Don't make mistakes. Don't get scars you don't need. But by the same token, it's not that I was as a nine-year-old boy out deep in the depths of open and public and perceptible sin, but I was just as lost, just as unsaved, just as undone, just as helpless and just as hopeless. And I look at my life now and I say, boy, Look where I could have been. I look at people that, that I knew, people that I went to school with, people that, that I grew up with, and I, I say, look at where they are. Not that I'm anything. I'm nothing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it's only by His grace that I'm anything. Some of you can look back at your lives before Christ used up a few years, and, and you had lived a little time. And you can say, man, look what I used to be. 
And look what God has made me today. Changed everything about you at Calvary. And maybe you're here tonight and you'd say, well, I ain't never had a change like that. I, I can't point to a time in my life when God saved me and my life changed. Can I say that you don't have to give another day to the devil? Tonight can be the night you get it settled. Tonight can be the night.